Welcome to Baseball Biz. I'm Mark Carpet, your host. And with me today, I have a very special guest, Craig Calcaterra. Craig, it's great having you here today on Baseball Biz. My gosh, man, I've been following you with your column, your newsletter, cup of coffee that you put out five times a week, and it just is eye-grabbing. You have a sense of the depth of what's going on with baseball. And this isn't something new to you. You've been on, I think, what, works with NBC Sports and uh, some others. I, I know I've seen you as a commentator, sometimes like on ESPN or NPR as well. So we have a very learned friend here today with baseball, <laughs> Mr. Craig Calcaterra. <laughs> I don't know how learned I am. I've just been doing it for a while. When you get old, man, you hang around long enough and people start calling you nice things. So we'll take it. <laughs> okay, man. Well, the one thing I tell you what, when I first saw your book, the new book that you had coming out, that title just grabbed me. Rethinking Fandom and being a, a, a Tropicana <laughs> Rays fan, that's something I do every day. But uh, <laughs> re- Rethinking Fandom and how to beat the sports industrial complex at its own game. And being a child who who grew up in the age of Eisenhower, when I hear that sports industrial complex, my mind immediately <laughs> goes to military <laughs> as his exit strategy from the White House. He was talking about beware the military industrial complex. And so when I saw your title, I thought, damn. <laughs> you know, I, I I can't say that I was a big fan of Eisenhower. He obviously predated me, but I'm a, I'm a student of history. I know stuff. <laughs> um, but I was always struck by that speech is his going out the door speech in 1960. And part of that is, you know, I've been on the inside. I've been studying this for a long time. I've been part of it for a long time. I'm even complicit in it a little bit, more than a little bit, considering he was, you know, literally the most powerful general on the planet uh, and the president. So the idea that you could look inside and see something and then uh, realize how big it is and how big the problems are, especially if you were part of those problems, and then walk out and start warning people about it. I, there's something inspiring about that. You know, you, you, you don't want somebody to be complicit in it, but uh, it's good to hear someone issuing the warning. And to be honest, if we had all listened to Eisenhower in 1960 and, and acted accordingly, maybe things would have been a lot different in the last 40, 50 years. Uh, I think that's true enough because it was a, it's a good warning, but I don't even know if most people got it in. I, I, like yourself, I look at history so much, uh, much less at the politics of, of things that he may or may not have done. But that message was clear. And you figure if a president on his way out says something like that, it may be worth at least taking a little check mark to it and look at it. But looking at, at that about be wearing, <laughs> as far as that going, talking about you know the sports industrial complex and you know what you're covering in that new book with Rethinking Fandom, man, oh man, you give us some depth. I think as a fans, as a casual fan, it's really easy to you know, maybe just follow some players and see what's going on with the game. It, and maybe a lot of those folks haven't been seeing what all is going on with the CBA, the collective bargaining agreement between MLB and its players association. But one thing, one thank God that's done. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm glad you're here to, to tell us about it because folks, again, uh, Craig Calcaterra, if you're, you're looking at his newsletter, cup of coffee, you're going to get great insights every day. Not only does he have the news, Craig sees things through a unique lens and he can give it, he give it. I'm gonna say. I don't want to say spin. You can give a nice, clear look at what's happening above and beyond just here are the facts about what's happening out there. So thank you for that. Oh, hey, it's it's fair to say spin. They're spinning you, and I'll spin you back. It's all right. Everybody's <laughs> spinning something. That's right, brother. Things just soon as this collective bargaining agreement was done. I mean, a little over 99 days. Bam! Here we are. We everybody says it's okay. We're actually going to have a full year of baseball. And what's going to happen with free agency trades, health services? 
from that lockout. I mean, I, I was concerned about uh, my own Tyler Glass now as a pitcher. You know, he couldn't get any health service, supposedly. And we see you posted today about Tatis Jr. <laughs> he had a, what, yeah. a, motor, what, a motorcycle accident about uh, two months ago. What, what happened there? Yeah, early December, uh, you know, Fernando Tatis Jr. had a motorcycle accident down in the Dominican Republic. And at the time it was announced and reported, it said he had some scrapes. And that's probably all he thought he had. But he didn't uh, have any contact really with the Padres doctors. The Padres didn't have any contact with him because it happened just after the lockout began. Uh, he shows up to spring training this weekend and they were like, hey, you need surgery. You're going to be out three months. Now, that's not to say that Tatis handled this perfectly, obviously. One, you know, just got a giant contract. Maybe he shouldn't be driving around on motorcycles, <laughs> but that's that's between him and his motorcycles and his team. But the other thing is, you know, how much did the lack of communication between the club and Tatis affect delaying this by, you know, over three months on a yeah. surgery that the recovery time for is three months. They're not going to get him back to after the break probably now. And uh, you just wonder if there was better communication lines between the team and the players, uh, things would have been better. I, I, I really do hope that someone like Glasnow, for example, has been, uh, you know, certainly talking to all the right people about his rehab. I'm sure he is because his future depends on it. But uh, man, anytime there's some sort of breakdown in communication there, you got to, you got to worry. Yeah. And it was interesting to see during this period, some people um, took, took very positive actions, you could say. And I can't remember if you're the guy who wrote, reported this or not, so forgive me, but we're talking about Shohei Otani's interpreter and how he quit working with the angels so he could actually continue to help Otani, you know, while this lockout was going on. Yeah, that was interesting. Yeah, he, he he resigns his job and then immediately gets hired back by the Angels after the lockout is over. I don't think everyone could do that. Like, no, you know, I don't I don't think the you know, Kevin Cash can't do that and uh, <laughs> go talk and working with his players and then go back. But, you know, <laughs> true enough. But, you know, the thing of it is, too, is there, there I mean, we've been in turmoil. Anybody who follows this and they're impassioned about it as, as a fan, they've been you know, looking for something new every day. We're looking from the different portals, as you say, each have their own spin and, and looking for some shred of truth. You know, some people say, oh, my gosh, pointing fingers at this one and that one are all doom and gloom. There's not going to be a season. Are we going to be out eight games? We're going to be this, that and the other. And then light comes through the skies. And here we are. <laughs> and we have this, the fans, the more avid fans can take a breath. Maybe some of the more casual fans didn't even know what was going on, not paying attention. I get that. And there's nothing <laughs> wrong with that. And in fact, you know, I would argue that, you know, my book is aimed more at casual fans than almost anyone else, because the, the one thing that people like you and me who are, are, you know, paying close attention to this stuff all the time, it's easy to get disillusioned. But I think we know enough and we're, we're in it enough and have dealt with it long enough to, to be able to deal with it. I could write about labor strife for six months, and then if things come back, I'll go right back into it talking about baseball. I'm okay with it. I get it. But if you're a casual fan, it's very easy to be alienated by sports these days, whether it's the bad business news, whether it's uh, you know greed, whether it's players or, or owners or whoever you think are the, the greedier parties in that, uh, whether it's the legal stuff involved, whether it's anything that uh, that sort of turns us off about sports. That's a good way for people just to say, you know what, I don't care about sports anymore. Now, I think that's a bad thing. I, I want people to care about sports. They don't need to live and die sports, but I want them to care about it because I think sports is a good thing for our community. I think it's a good thing for human nature to have a common point of interest and, and, and those sorts of things. So when I went and sat down to write the book, I was trying to think, how do you stay a fan 
if you're turned off by all the negative things. And I talk a lot in this book about the negative things, but then I also try to offer ways to either rationalize it or or live with it or ignore it if you want to. I mean, one perfect uh, way to approach this lockout that we just had would have been on December 1st to check out a baseball completely, watch some football, watch some NBA, see some good movies, whatever. And now that it's over, check back in and pay attention again. There's nothing wrong with that. It's self-defense. And what it is, is not letting what I refer to in the book as the sports industrial complex sort of run your life. Don't don't let the people who own teams and, and sports networks, uh, you know, dictate how happy or how sad you're going to be at any given time. Amen to that. And I, I know I've been talking with our audience for a while now saying, Hey, he finds something else out there. One thing I said, guess what? You, you got minor leagues out there. You're going to be able to watch whatever happens with MLB. Uh, myself, I've been following NCAA softball. I started following it a little heavily last year with the World Series and uh, following it more this year. Uh, of course, yourself, I see you're, you're with soccer and uh, my uh, co-host, Brandon, he's he's with NASCAR. We've got these things. And at some point, th- the passion kind of moves to those other sports. So do I, do I bring all that time, do I bring all that passion back to, to baseball or did they lose some of it? Because you talk about in your book about the, uh, basically, I guess it's an implied social contract between the fans and the teams. Yeah, and- it's, I mean, that's how we've all come to understand sports. When we're little kids, we think of it this way. We think that we're going to root for a team and they're going to try to win. That's pretty simple. That's that's the agreement. If if they don't try to win or if they really stink, then you know our enthusiasm wanes. But if they're winning, we're cheering, we're happy. That's that's a very basic thing about how sports is supposed to work. But it really doesn't work that way anymore. Not always. Certainly not in the closer you look, especially sports like baseball, like I, I focus on. Uh, you know, it's always been a business. There's always been money involved. But that essential contract of if we win, the fans will buy the tickets and the merchandise and watch on TV, uh, that's going away. And, and the reason that's going away is because the people that own baseball teams and football teams and run the leagues have realized that they can make money even if they lose. And we, we see this in baseball because of revenue sharing and real estate developments that the teams own and stadium deals and gambling income and official partnership of Major League Baseball. You're getting money from, you know, trucking companies and things. There is a, a pool of money that comes in to the people who own sports teams, regardless of how many tickets are sold. And in fact, tickets now are far, far lower a percentage of team revenues than they ever have been before. If you're the Cincinnati Reds, you are guaranteed $65 million in national TV money every year before you sell a single ticket. And then you're getting another 30 or $40 million of local TV money. And then you're getting a few tens more millions of dollars through other revenue sources. You're, you're well over $100 million, probably considerably over $100 million, probably over $200 million. Their payroll is going to be like, 50 million bucks this year. Wow. And they're going to lose about 110 games, I would guess. They don't care. They don't have to care because they're still going to make money. And that underlying contract, you win, we support you, doesn't matter to them anymore. So if you're a fan, what do you do? Well, and you talk about that further. I want to get into that because to me, I mean, part of the solution has been to to step back from it. But I, I want to talk a little bit more about how those how the teams got there, how the ownership got there, and how we never really saw it coming. 
looking at what happened again with the CBA and seeing what happened as far as Matt Olson going to the Braves. I think that might be a good example. But looking at the Braves, I'm looking at one of my favorite GMs, Alex Anthopoulos. You know, some of the shrewd moves he did after the All-Star game last year, really building a stronger team and you know, doing all they did to get to the World Series and win it. But the Braves have been smart on a lot of other things, too, that, that weren't necessarily friendly to all the taxpayers of Atlanta. And, and I was yeah. wondering if you could walk us through some of what happened with the developer Truist and that stadium and, and how they got there. Yeah, I mean, as a lot of people know, they they used to play in Fulton County Stadium, which was your old style 1960s. Uh, the government builds it and the team moves in and pays rent. That's They and the Falcons did that for years. And then in the 90s, when the Atlanta Olympics happened, they made a deal with the city and with the Olympic Committee to get that stadium. The Olympic Stadium is theirs. And that was Turner Field. And they played in it for well, I guess less than 20 years, around 20 years. Wow. Um, and then a few years ago, they just made a deal to build a ballpark in the, in the northern suburbs of Atlanta in Cobb County, Georgia. And the county taxpayers are on the hook for most of it. The Braves contributed some money, but the county taxpayers uh, are and continue to pay a heck of a lot of money uh, for that stadium. But what the Braves were looking for was not just a new stadium. They weren't just looking for the, if you build it, you know, we will come kind of situation where more fans would come. That was part of it, but that wasn't the real big part of it. The real big part of it was surrounding the ballpark were a few hundred acres of empty land that the Braves purchased and that they are now developing a huge suburban mixed-use development on office buildings, hotels, bars, restaurants, apartments, condos, things like that. That is called the Battery, and it's run by the Atlanta Braves. And if you look on the organizational chart of the Atlanta Braves baseball team, the guy who runs the baseball team is on the same level of the org chart as the guy who runs the real estate stuff, and they both answer to the president of the team. It shows you that the real estate development and the real estate money for the Atlanta Braves is every bit as important, if not more important, to the bottom line of the team than the exploits of the baseball team. Now, to be fair, the Braves won the World Series last year. So, you know, they're doing all right on that part. But a big reason why they just announced record profits was because of that real estate deal. Uh, I think they're on the right track baseball wise. You mentioned Alex Anthopoulos. I think he is one of those guys who hasn't lost the sense of the implied contract. When he was with Toronto, uh, he went out and got some good players and pushed that team to the playoffs. And then he got fired because the owners didn't like it. <laughs> he was spending too much money. They didn't want to win. They wanted to make money. Anthopoulos, I think, is a good guy, and I think he understands it. So he's continuing to try to do things to keep the Braves winning. But that's not a given. There are other teams. The Cubs are a great example that are also doing real estate deals around the ballpark. Uh, the, uh, the the Rockies have done this. The, uh, the Cardinals have done this. The Giants are doing it. There are a lot of teams that are doing this now, looking for revenue streams that have nothing to do with baseball. That way, it doesn't matter how the baseball team does that way you don't have to spend as much on the single biggest expense baseball teams have, which is player salary. Wow. It's it, yeah. I wouldn't have initially thought about all the real estate development, but what you were talking about also with Atlanta, 
they got that push through in the government without actually even what, having to post it and let people know they kind of. Oh, it was it was it was announced as a done deal. I remember the day I was sitting here in my house. I used to write for NBC. And I remember when that came across the wire of uh, the Atlanta Braves and the county Cobb County commissioners just announced we have a deal. This is going. There was no talk about them moving out of the city. There was no talk about them looking for a ballpark because their ballpark was less than 20 years old. Um, it just happened. It was a backroom deal. There was no taxpayer input. There was no public. Uh, in fact, they were found to the county commissioners in Cobb County were found to have violated open meeting laws by having meetings and stairwells and things like that. So the public didn't have to know about it. This is the kind of thing that, you know, when I say the sports industrial complex, I don't just mean the teams and the leagues, the local governments are in on it too. The, the city of Buffalo or whoever is given the bills uh, you know, a billion bucks for that new football stadium they announced earlier this week. They're part of the sports industrial complex. They are making choices uh, about sports that affect you, whether you care or not, and whether you like it or not. And that's what we have to contend with as fans. How can we be sports fans knowing that this is what goes on? Well, that's it. Because, I mean, if we're just looking at a passion where we're saying, we're giving to you the team, we're buying your gear, we're buying your tickets, we're watching the team. And we just want a winning team back. Well, you know, the, the owners aren't looking at that relationship the same. They say, yeah, we, we might give you a winning team, but hey, guess what? I, I'm a lowly team, but I'm going to make money on gear that's sold uh, on MLB.com for the Yankees. So that has nothing to do with you. Yeah, they share all that money. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and that one, that kind of surprised me. I read it a long time back. It's like, oh my gosh, look at this. All these other teams that really don't have maybe a chance in hell of doing anything. They're making money on the larger teams sales through MLV, you know, but, it, but anyway, getting back to, to the idea that it's not directly an involvement with that fan as it is an involvement with the community and involvement with the media and a willingness to find the best opportunity you can as far as land development and commercial uh, ideas around that. Well, it's the, the priorities aren't the same as our priorities it, and, and extends to the ownership now. Right. I mean, there was a time. And I'm not saying that there was some perfect time. There never was a perfect time. There were always things to complain about. But there was a time when more owners, and again, I'm going to keep going back to baseball because that's the sport I know the best, um, when more of the owners were in it as sort of an extension of their ego, right? Yeah. You own a baseball team, and I want my baseball team to win. Ted Turner didn't buy, I mean, Ted Turner bought the Braves partially for programming for his for his cable network, but Ted Turner also wanted to win things. That's why he raced boats and, you know, bought sports teams and things. He wanted to win. George Steinbrenner wanted to use the Yankees as an extension of his ego. I, I'm a champion and my baseball team's a champion and that makes me a better person. And that's ugly in a lot of ways. And it created a lot of bad stuff. But at the same time, they still wanted what you wanted, right? George Steinbrenner wanted to win a World Series in New York just as much, if not more, than Yankees fans did. And there's something to be said about that, even if George Steinbrenner was kind of a jackass. <laughs> so, you know, the idea is their their interests were aligned. And we we are now certainly in an age where far more of the people who own sports teams are in it for uh, financial reasons, business reasons. They might as well be owning a, you know, a steel supply shop. They might as well be owning a reinsurance firm. It doesn't kind of matter for some of these guys. It's just a means of making money. I mean, there are articles written just this week uh, in the Los Angeles Times. There was a great article about how private equity firms are are really investing in Major League Baseball because revenues are so good. If revenues weren't good, they'd be investing somewhere else. 
but that's where a lot of money is right now is in sports. So that's where they are. And a lot of the current ownership class are those people too. There's a reason why a hedge fund guy bought the New York Mets. There's a reason why uh, private equity firms have minority shares in something like six or eight major league baseball teams. Um, it's just a business proposition to them. And that's especially true when you're seeing second and third generation owners. Uh, Mike Illich in Detroit was the old school kind of guy, the guy who owned the Tigers. He he bought the Tigers because he wanted to win. That's why he had the Red Wings and the Tigers. He wanted to win championships and satisfy his ego. Uh, his sons own it now. He's dead and his sons own it now. Uh, there's a sense that for them, it's just, it, you know, if the family business was something else, which it is, I mean, they own Little Caesars Pizza too, you know, is pizza or baseball making more money right now? That's where we're going to put our focus on. I, I think that's the sense that you get looking at a lot of the modern owners. And it's a little dispiriting because we like to think of sports as, even though we're smart and we know that sports is a business, we like to think that there's an element of it that's aside from the business that give us satisfaction and help us you know, do things that, that make us happy. Yeah, I think early on in the book, you talk about Detroit and some of the things that happened early on, tying the uh, the sports teams success to the success of the city coming back, which neither mm-hmm. one, I don't think either one was accurate, but it, yeah. it was, it was, it was something for people to dig their teeth into. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a way that they, they sort of play on our sympathies, right? I mean, not every stadium deal is, is like the one in Cobb County, Georgia, where they do it behind closed doors. A lot of them, they put out for votes and, and taxpayers agree to, to, you know, Dallas is a great example, or uh, Arlington, Texas, where the Rangers just got a new ballpark again for the second time in 25 years. Um, they they put that out for a vote uh, in Cleveland. They put uh, a vote on for uh, renovations to where the Cleveland Cavaliers play to massive renovations to where uh, the now Cleveland Guardians play. They built that stadium for the Browns. Uh, a lot of it was based on public assent to that sort of thing. And what happens, though, is the, the the team is just a business and it's a private business and it's allowed to pursue its own profits most of the time. But when they need something from the public, all of a sudden it's a public trust. Oh, the Cleveland Browns are, are the city's team, not just my team. So please give me some money for the stadium. It's for all of us. And that whole narrative you mentioned before about how... Uh, uh, sports teams help lift the spirits of a city and make cities better. Therefore, we're supposed to give them more money for their stadiums and give them tax breaks and give them big parades when they do things. Uh, that's kind of a, a false narrative. They said it in Detroit in 1968 that it healed the city after race riots in, in the in the mid-60s. It didn't heal anything. It just made people feel good for about five minutes. Uh, when the Cavaliers were in the NBA Finals a few years ago, there was this whole narrative that goes around about the Cleveland Cavaliers are the heart of the city and they're making the whole city better. And that was a huge reason why uh, they ended up getting uh, money to renovate their arena. Uh, that linkage is very convenient for the sports industrial complex. When they want something, they're a public trust. When they don't need anything from us, they're a private business and we can take what we can get. (laughs) Oh, that's painful, but true. (laughs) What can I say? As I was reading your book and I was going over some of these things you just mentioned to Cleveland, I was, I've been four or five things going at the same time. And I was watching uh, an old movie I enjoyed, Major League. Oh, yes. and it starts out, it's funny because it starts out with an, uh, the camera on one of the guardians of the, of the bridge. <laughs> since the, That's the new name. Yeah, the new team and all that. But the thing of it is, is in that movie, the owner's doing everything that she can think of to, to tank that team. So they'll do so poorly with attendance that they can break their lease and go to Miami. 
<laughs> you know what? When that movie, I remember when that movie came out and people saying, oh, it's so over the top. That villain, she was so bad. It's like, that's pretty par for the course now. That was maybe the most realistic thing about that movie. That movie gets baseball so right in so many ways. Oh, yeah. But I think it gets the way that owner works in a lot of ways. Yeah. Well, it was it was a sad story. But I mean, it was it's fun to watch. But yes, at the same time, I think, damn. Damn it! That, this is too true. You know, this is too too much. How things are going on. And one of the things you do talk about in the book is you know tanking. You talk about the basic blueprint for that. Can can you tell us a little bit about that basic tanking blueprint and a couple more times how it's been utilized? Yeah, I mean, I think it really got the most momentum behind it in basketball. That's when people started to really pay attention to tanking, and the idea being a team is going to lose intentionally in order to do better down the road. That's that's the ideal, right? And in basketball, one player or two players could be all the difference between uh, a championship and, and being terrible. It doesn't take much. You only need a LeBron James or a Michael Jordan or somebody like that, and you can do really, really well. Um, so, you know, the Philadelphia 76ers probably perfected it. They almost admitted they were doing it. They went out and said, you got to trust the process. We're going to have a few rough years here, but then it's going to get better. And, and to be fair, it kind of worked there. Um, in football, it can kind of work a little bit too, because even though there are way more players on a football team, the quarterback is obviously the most important guy. So if you can tank and get a really good quarterback, have a really bad year and, uh, ensure the number one, you know, draft pick the year that, you know, someone like a Joe Burrow or somebody comes out, that's not a bad deal for you. You could do that and you can turn things around. Baseball tanking is a little different. Um, baseball, you you could draft the, the best player that's come out of either high school or college in 10 years. And there's still no guarantee that guy even makes the majors. It's a big grind and it's a big jump to go from high school, college baseball to the major leagues it could take four or five years sometimes, even with the best players. But that started anyway. The Houston Astros did it. The Chicago Cubs did it. It was very clear what they were doing. They were tearing down the big league roster to its bare minimum, cutting salary as much as possible so the team can be profitable. And so the team doesn't do particularly well. That helps get them draft picks. They have free agents that leave. They get compensation picks. They lose 105 games for three years in a row like the Astros did. They get a lot of high draft picks. They stockpile that. They build their system from within. And then eventually they come out and they win. It worked for Houston. And it worked to some degree for Chicago. It wasn't just the tanking that did it in Chicago, but that definitely helped. But that also served as sort of a blueprint for a lot of other teams but teams that maybe didn't have the same ability and the same brain trust as Houston and Chicago did, but they certainly saw that they came out okay on the other end after four or five years of low payrolls and, and poor talent. And there are a lot of teams that are doing that now, but there aren't that many baseball teams that can get away with it because you can't guarantee wins down the, down the road like you can in basketball with one player. Um, so tanking has just been a, a, a terrible problem. It was a huge issue in the collective bargaining agreement talks that we just had about teams need to at least try to win. You've got to spend some money. You've got to get quality players and not just be content to lose 100 games. But as we're sitting here talking today, we're one day removed from the Cincinnati Reds trading away two of their best players for basically nothing. Uh, after letting one of their best pitchers walk on waivers for nothing, after trading away their catcher for almost nothing. The Cincinnati Reds have no interest in winning in 2022 or probably 2023 or 24. Um, and there are at any given time, four or five teams in baseball doing that. And it just makes for miserable competition. Yeah. You know, the, the whole 
phrase we're rebuilding and gets utilized a lot. It's maybe sometimes it's true, but a lot of times it's just that there you do have to rebuild. I mean, in baseball, you do have to rebuild. There is such a thing as the success cycle, as it's been referred to. There is a thing that, you know, your players get older, you got to get younger players and stuff. But I think there's a difference between rebuilding and just completely tearing it down and, and putting a horrible product on the field for a few years. You can, you could put recognizable major league quality players on the field. You might have to spend a little bit more to do it, but you can make a product that is a competitive product. I don't mean a winning product, but there's a difference between a team that that wins 78 games and a team that wins 54 games. And one of them is an embarrassment. The other one is just a, a not a very good team. And I think that Major League Baseball has gone far too far in allowing teams to put embarrassing product on the field as opposed to merely bad teams. Uh, you know, again, I was a Braves fan in the 80s when I was a kid. I watched a lot of bad baseball between 1984 and 1990. And they did have one or two years where they lost 100 games. It was pretty bad. But at any given time, they still had entertaining players. They still had, you know, they kept Dale Murphy maybe a little too long, but you could turn on a Braves game and know that you're going to see Dale Murphy playing. And he's a, he's a legit two-time MVP, real major league player. You could see some veterans, guys like, you know, they had Greg Nettles or they brought in Ted Simmons or they brought in, you know, players that maybe were past their prime, but were at least guys that you would want to see. Right. Um, you're not seeing that now with some of these rebuilds that, uh, that I consider to be tank jobs. Well, I hope that for the fans' sake that we see less and less of that. But quite honestly, Craig, I'm I'm a little concerned about the number of teams that are going to be in the playoffs now. And <sighs> yeah, <laughs> that's another one that gets me. So we what, we got twelve this time, right? Yeah, yeah. They went from ten to twelve. I I mean, I don't play old man very often in baseball, but I sure <laughs> did like it when it was just a couple of playoff teams, or you know. Just two two teams winning their league and going to the World Series was a little before my time, but you know, two division winners playing in a in an LCS and then going to the World Series. I like that. My problem with the expanded playoffs is that it it makes the regular season it devalues the regular season. Mm-hmm. In that the more teams in the playoffs, the shorter the series, the more likely it is that whoever the best team over 162 games is is not going to hang around very long because anything could happen in three or five games. And so I, I've started to, you know, I know I lost that argument years ago. We're never going back. There's too much money in playoffs. But um, I've started to think of the baseball season and the playoffs as two distinct things. Uh, the baseball season at the end of 162 games at you know October 1st or 2nd or whenever it ends is uh, we know who the best baseball team of the season was. Last year, it was the Giants or the Dodgers, depending on how you think about the difference between those two teams we know over the course of the season that is a crucible and that tests you in every way possible that they were the best teams and then the playoffs for me are a tournament it's like college basketball yeah. as far as i'm concerned it's it's entertaining it's fun it'll tell you who won the world series but it doesn't tell you who who the best team is anymore and that's something i just got to get cool with because again that train left the station 25 30 years ago yeah i mean i wind up i the world series has a lot of importance to me, but I got to tell you, I'm looking closely at those divisional winners too. I'm saying, you know, what they had to do to get there. And especially if you're looking at a division where you have three or four really great teams who do have to slug it out for an entire season. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I, it blows my mind that if we were playing under a different system last year, that the Dodgers wouldn't have made the playoffs. <laughs> but I remember 1993. I remember, or yeah, 93, when the when the Braves and the Giants were both in the last season, the Braves were in the NL West. And uh, 
Giants won like 102 games and didn't make the playoffs. And and that's really rough, but that was a heck of a pennant race. And, uh, you know, it definitely meant something. And now I, I just, it doesn't sit well. It's a great story for the fan of the 89 win team that, that wins the World Series because they got a wild card and then they got hot at the right time. I'm not going to take that away from them. I don't want to devalue what fans of those teams experience because it's still a great, wonderful thing and a great, wonderful story. But man, it just doesn't tell me who the best team is. It just tells me who was hot in October. Yeah, it's hard to make a bet on who's going to be there. And, <laughs> oh gosh! And, and talking about bets, I, I've been—it's been interesting watching over the last several years. Watching gambling slowly creep into you know MG with MGM and the Major League Baseball, mm-hmm. DraftKings, and others. And uh, well, you know, I've seen off-track betting built twenty blocks away thirty years ago. Go, go! But now you've got a, a place right next to the stadium, and some already, I believe, are incorporating sports books inside the stadium. And this is something that I thought was anathema to, to have a gambling involved or attached to, to MLB. Yeah. It's for years. I mean, it, it was obviously the, the cardinal sin in baseball is gambling. They couldn't have anything related. I mean, Mickey Mantle and, and Willie Mays took jobs that had nothing to do with the gambling floor at Atlantic city casinos and got suspended. I mean, they were just going golfing with guys because they, you know, working for the casino and they got suspended. This it was crazy uh, against anything that the the professional sports league stood for. But that all changed. It became inevitable that they were going to legalize sports gambling outside of Nevada. Uh, the sports industrial complex saw that there's money to be made. There, you know, we're either going to get on that train or we're going to get run over by it. Is what they decided, and so they decided to get on the train. And hey, that's a defensible move. I understand it. Um, you know, if you're Rob Manfred and you run major league baseball, how can you go to your 30 bosses and say, there's probably about 5 billion bucks to be made by partnering up with casinos, but I'm not going to do it on principle. So, you know, that guy'd be fired faster than you can imagine. (laughs) What, what irks me about it though, is, you know, again, I, I'm not a prohibition guy. I'm not a gambler by any stretch of the imagination. I don't like it. I'm personally don't like gambling, but I'm not a guy who thinks it should be illegal because I don't think that you could make vices illegal attractive vices is what i refer to them as things like you know drinking and gambling and whatever it's it's gonna happen uh so if you legalize it at least you can take a big part of that and make it legitimate and regulate it and do things so that's fine what really bugs me about how it's played out is just how thoroughly the leagues and the media sports media have have jumped in on it and they're very clearly focusing on the idea that the way to make money in this is to extract every possible penny we can from people who are basically problem gamblers. If you, if you look at how the, the business model is, is setting up right now, it's designed to work against the weaknesses of a gambling addict. They're creating this idea, this whole market called micro betting, and it's all on your phone. Um, you know, it's not a matter of it'd be different if we had that OTB, you know, down a couple miles down the road and someone had to, you know, every day get in their car, go down there and put a little money on it. There'd be at least a barrier. There'd be a practical limit to what you could do. There's a there's a saying that someone gave the other day about how there's a million pitchers pitches in a major league baseball season and major league baseball has ensured that you can gamble on every single one of them uh, with phone apps and things like that. You can guess is the next pitch going to be a strike. Is it going to be a ball? Is the, is the next hit going to come from a left-hander or a right-hander? That's, that's how it's going. They call micro bets. And that's the sort of thing that is going to play on addicts 
more than anything else. And they're going to ruin people's lives by extracting as much money as they can from people who have gambling problems. And they're going to encourage gambling problems among people who are susceptible to them. A great many of us, great many of the people listening to this are perfectly capable of going and putting $50 down on a game and, and just doing it for the fun of it and not worrying about it. Uh, there are people that aren't that way, though. And there are people who are going to be ruined by uh, the way sports has taken to sports betting. Yeah, many of us may have had a friend or family who wound up digging a deep hole uh, because of gambling. And I personally, I, I you know, I, I have no problem with people doing the, the legal gambling, you know, me growing up in Kentucky, going out to the track and put a few dollars down on a race. But those where you continually have a situation like you're talking about, especially when you're breaking down your betting, I mean, almost on every pitch. I have something to bet on. Say, say if I had to bet on Wordle once a day and I was putting down two bucks, not so much. But if there's continuously an opportunity for me or someone else to, to gamble, you know, play after play after play. Yeah, it, yes. I mean, gambling is something that, that captures people. And there are those folks who have a weakness there and it can destroy their lives. So it does bother me because of that. And if the type of gambling that you're talking about is there where a person can make a bet play by play by play, that's, that's a, a trough of uh, danger. I just wouldn't want to put somebody near. Yeah. And I don't think they're taking it seriously. I mean, I, I really don't think that the leagues and the, the networks who are promoting all this kind of stuff are, are really appreciating what they're doing. I, I know the casinos are because that's their business. Um, but I don't think they realize the business that they've gotten into. Well, I'm hoping some kind of enlightenment comes to them and they they find a way to to make it, well, what do I want to say, less problematic. I don't think it'll ever be not be a problem, but less problematic for a lot of people. So we'll see yeah. what comes. Well, talking about whether or not owners care or aware of things, I got to tell you one thing that really just blows my mind is when I hear, whether it be a commissioner or an owner or a lot of these people speak, it's like, can you tell the temperature of the room folks? Can you tell what's going on? <laughs> and, I mean, looking back to when you were talking about the Braves and what was the president of the Braves, he was talking to the press club and he was oh. letting it go ahead. Tell me, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. I think, I think it was John Malone of, uh, I can't remember if it was John Malone or Terry McGurk, the president of the Braves. Yeah. Terry McGurk. He, you know, the Braves had started the season out something like, you know, three and 14 or something terrible. And, you know, the, the, the comment that he made was, don't worry about it. You know, the, the, the Braves are a baseball team and it's bad when we lose baseball games, but we're also a real estate company. So we're doing OK. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God, do you not understand? I mean, I get why you're doing what you do, but don't say it out loud like that. Don't oh, yeah. rub our faces in it. Um, you know, another great example. I, I think the worst person at this ever is Rob Manfred, the current commissioner Jeez, of baseball. God bless him. Uh, you know, when he was dealing, he was taking questions about fan anger over the Houston Astros stealing uh, signs uh, a couple years ago. And, you know, his response was the World Series trophy. It's just a piece of metal. Why do we care so much about that? I, I don't think he understands what people get out of sports and that we have an emotional attachment to it. Bud Selig was somebody who no one had a lot of great love for. He certainly had his share of faults on the public stage. But one thing that no one ever doubted about Bud Selig was that he loved baseball. Yeah, He loves it and he can talk about it forever and he's knowledgeable about it. He made a lot of decisions that were bad for it, I think, and he certainly angered a lot of people. But there was never a sense that Bud Selig didn't care about baseball as a sport. 
he understood why people liked it. Rob Manfred, uh, you know, I, I don't say this as a disparagement of lawyers because I myself am a lawyer and I practiced law for 11 years and I still have my law license and all that kind of stuff. But Rob Manfred is a lawyer first and foremost. And he was a labor lawyer and he might have gotten hired by, uh, you know, an auto plant or he might have gotten hired by, uh, you know, a distribution firm to deal with labor law with them. But no, he just happened. It's a law firm that he worked for, got hired by Major League Baseball, and that's how he got into the business. And there's never been a sense from Rob Manfred in any way that he loves the game, that he particularly appreciates the game in its history, or that he certainly appreciates what fans get out of baseball. I think he thinks it's a product like anything else. And if he's selling the right number of the you know, widgets, then he's doing okay. But people don't view sports the same way they view other businesses, even if they are a business. We don't view sports the way we view, you know, I, I drive a Subaru, okay? I don't wake up in the morning thinking about how Subaru is doing. I don't, you know, spend my my off hours looking up newspaper articles about Subaru, hoping that their stock price is going well or hoping that the next car they make is going to be a good one. I, I don't care. It's just a product I bought because at the time it made sense for me. We don't interact with sports that way. We have an emotional attachment to sports and a commitment, a lifetime investment sometimes one that's even more important than sports could even imagine. If you and your dad, for example, bonded over sports and, and he's no longer with us, you know, that transcends even life for some people. Is it fair, you know, to Rob Manford to, to have that kind of weight on him? Maybe not, but you got to know that going in because that, that dynamic in sports predated him, but he doesn't seem to care. And he says things all the time that almost makes it seem like he's insulting people for caring as much as we do. And, and that's just what irks me. I, I can deal with someone dealing sharply with me or taking positions I don't agree with if I think that on some level, we both love the thing we're arguing over. There you go. Yeah. But I don't think he does. And that's what really, really, really makes me angry about him. Well, I'd hope as long as he has been involved with baseball that that would have developed. But I think he started out with like the mindset of a business person, an attorney, and has never gotten beyond that. And it's sad. I mean, he at least, I don't know if it's him or somebody in PR said, Rob, you got to go back out and you have to apologize to the fans now that the lockout's over and we got a CBA because, man, you didn't do anything great as far as building love with the fans during that period. <laughs> yeah. He did have that comment about, you know, I, he said something last week about how, uh, you know, I, I got to do better about communicating this stuff, but he doesn't believe that because he's had the same thing happen before. And uh, I think he just wants the bad press to go away as fast as it can go. I think they were really, I think Major League Baseball was really take, taken aback by how negative uh, the coverage was of the lockout compared to, you know, because when Rob Manford was an attorney for baseball back in 94, 95, uh, the media was generally pro ownership. But with the internet and with the way, you know, fans are a lot more educated about the business of the game and stuff now, it was overwhelmingly against the league and, and on the yeah. side of the players. I don't think the league was prepared for that. I think it sort of uh, ruffled him a little bit. <laughs> well, there's there's a certain detachment, I think, that's from the tower that they don't get to see everything and it, even what's evolving around them. So, yeah, wake up. And they, got, they certainly got to wake up. Cause. So we'll see how that translates into the rest of the year. You know, one thing I was talking about before we started this show, I think we may have a little time for this mm -hmm. is looking at the CBA. I think one point of contention was what would be happening with the international draft and free agents, because as those people come in, if I understand correctly, they're not union 
well, they're not with the Players Association, the people who no. come in for the national draft. How does that work? Yeah, you are not on the Players Association. You are not a union member until you're on a 40-man roster. Uh, so most minor leaguers are not in the union. Certainly amateurs are not in the union. If you're a high school player or a college player, or if you're a 14 year old playing in the Dominican Republic, you're not part of the union. But since they don't have a union, uh, the major league baseball players association is who negotiates with major league baseball about how the mechanics of the draft work, but it doesn't really affect their membership. It affects the, the future members. That's why the union's allowed to do that because the, the argument is, well, there are future members. So we get to say something. Um, so the way it works now is in, in, you know, in the United States, Canada, and Puerto Rico, everybody's subject to the draft, but in the Dominican Republic, Venezuela, any other country, you know, Nicaragua, Bahamas, now increasingly Curacao, wherever it is, those are all free agents and they can be signed from the time they're 16 years old. Uh, there's a lot of excesses in that market. Anytime you're dealing with kids, there's the chance for exploitation, especially when you're dealing with very poor families and very poor kids. And then there's this entire uh, industry that has evolved um, in which these guys go out and identify talent and then take them to major league scouts and demand a cut of whatever they're going to get. It's, it's, it's ugly, right? It's like any, any sort of situation. It can be ugly. Uh, major league baseball has a lot of rules and a lot of power to crack down on that and to make it better, but they just generally haven't for a lot of reasons. And then for the last several years, because there have been a lot of stories about the exploitation in places like the Dominican Republic, major league baseball says, well, if we put them all subject to a draft, and we don't have free agents and there isn't this cash incentive for, for guys to come and get big free agents uh, contracts and things, then all those excesses will go away. I, maybe, maybe. There's, there's a chance a lot of it does. Um, it's also the f- fact that it could go away without a draft. And there's also the fact that having a draft is a great way for Major League Baseball to lower its talent acquisition costs. I'm a cynical guy. I tend to think that the reason Major League Baseball wants to have an international draft is so it doesn't have to pay $2 million to a top prospect who's 16 years old. I think they just want to, you know, draft them and put them under slot payments like minor leaguers are now. Um, For whatever the, the merits of that is, it does look like we are going to eventually have an international draft. And the way it was left was uh, the players wouldn't agree to it to get a CBA done, but they agreed to talk about it. And so between now and uh, July, the end of July, some committee of the owners and the players are going to talk about it. And if they can agree on the terms of an international draft, we'll have one starting probably in like two years. Uh, If they can't agree on it, it goes back to the old system. And then in exchange, the players will have free agent uh, uh, draft picks attached to them, the qualifying offer and things like that. If we get an international draft, the players get something out of it. They lose the qualifying offer and free agent compensation draft picks. So it's a lot of people that are bargaining the future of a lot of 14, 15, 16 year old kids that have nothing to do with those kids at all, wow. which makes it all a little unseemly. Uh, and that's that's my biggest issue with the union, if anything. I'm a very pro-union guy when it comes to all this stuff. Anybody who's read my writing knows that. Um, yeah, I mean, I might as well be a, a PR arm for the Major League <laughs> Baseball Players Association sometimes, but I, I'm very much opposed to the way uh, the union bargains away uh the, the the power and the futures of these kids and i certainly don't like the way major league baseball exploits them oh yeah oh yeah well you know one of the things about this too i thought that the uh, conversation agreeing to have that conversation if it didn't turn out the way they wanted i thought the whole cba was at risk i mean even though nope. it's already been said no no yeah they made it a uh, they made it a side deal 
Um, so they've got a they've got a fail safe in there. If it doesn't, if they can't come to an agreement, then it's just going to revert back on those particular terms to the old system. But the CBA is locked in. Wow. Yeah. I again, I'm glad to hear that part. At least I'm not too crazy about what's going on with the international draft. And since they're talking about working on issues or players who aren't actually underneath uh, union contract, I was wondering if we'd ever see anything with minor league ball. You know, I thought there's not a minor league union and saw a lot of activity while the lockout was going on of people who were coming into the minor leagues. Probably saw more about it because there wasn't anything, there wasn't anything to report on the major league players, but uh, I, there's, there's real no, really no protection there. I guess they're going to have to come up with their own thing for minor league ball. Yeah. And it's so hard just because, um, you know, minor leaguers careers aren't very long. It takes a while to organize a union and it would take a couple of years and half the guys it would be for it would be out of baseball by the time it came around. And so it'd be a very difficult thing to do. Um, there's talk about how, well, why doesn't the major league baseball players association just say, okay, minor leaguers, you're all a member of us and we negotiate for you now. Well, that doesn't work quite that easily. Labor law is such that Major League Baseball would have to agree to that because they get to agree with who they recognize as a union. And uh, then you'd have litigation. So it's it's not an easy nut to crack. But minor leaguers are woefully treated. And to some extent, the same situation that happened with those international kids has happened with the minor leaguers. Major League Baseball's union has has sort of bargained away some minor league uh, rights uh, that uh, you know you wouldn't think are necessarily theirs to bargain away, but it's happened. Um, it's 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 rough, and uh, when you've got Congress helping Major League Baseball keep minor leaguers underpaid, which they did, passing a law a few years ago that classified them as seasonal employees, as if they were landscapers or lifeguards or something, it's the deck is stacked against you. And if you're an 18 year old kid, 17 year old kid in high school, and you're a star athlete. And like most high, you know, at most high schools, star athletes can play multiple sports. You know, the guy who's the best basketball player is probably a great wide receiver on your football team and is probably your best pitcher. Um, if you're that guy, why are you picking baseball? Yeah. Why are you going to pick a sport that might take six years for you to get any kind of money? And in the meantime, you're you're making sub minimum wage and riding buses through Nowheresville, USA. Whereas if you play basketball, you might be in the NBA this time next year. So, you know, I think it's going to cause it, it has caused already. And I think it's going to cause more talent drain from baseball where promising young athletes are going to look to other sports or other things to do rather than play this game. Wow. You know, you talk about some of that early on about your own journey and seeing some things like football, not necessarily being part of your viewing anymore because of what happened with you know, re- recognizing the injuries, the concussions that come with that. And what kind of fan you want to be? You know, this is a way maybe of saying, okay, I'm stepping away from this because I'm not going to support that. Uh, I'm looking at becoming more of a casual fan of, of some other sports. And I was wondering if you could tell us maybe kind of a little bit more about how fans can respond to baseball or other sports to say, hey, remember me, take care right. of me, this social I- contract, what's going on, guys? Well, you know, I, I don't want to put it in a position where we can make sports bend to our will because I don't think fans can. I don't no. think we have the power to to make Major League Baseball change the way it, what it does. I mean, maybe if millions of us get together and do things, sure. But no individual fan has the power to to bend sports to their will. But what we do have is we have the power to not let sports negatively affect us in our experience with sports. 
it's a hard needle to thread because, you know, I, as you know, I spend much of the book talking about the excesses of the sports leagues and, and the, the negative things that happen. And a natural response to that would be, well, you know what? I should just give up sports. Why am I watching this if this stuff is so bad? Well, you know, I don't want that to happen. I want people to find a way that they can still enjoy the entertainment aspects of sports to where they can still go into a bar and look at somebody next to them on the bar stool and look at the TV up above and have a common point of reference and say, oh, yeah, that guy, isn't he good? You know, you can talk a little bit about it. Those are the good parts about sports, watching a game and enjoying it. So a good way to sort of protect yourself is, you know, make sure sports keeps an appropriate place in your life. Don't let it have an outside place in your life to where you are, uh, you know, letting it affect your moods and it affect your life too much. Don't let it have a place where your happiness is dependent upon what some billionaire doesn't care about you does. And if that means I can't watch the Cincinnati Reds anymore because the Cincinnati Reds owner doesn't care about me and he doesn't want to put a good product on the field and they raise the prices anyway and it's terrible. Well, maybe I'm just going to now, you know, become a St. Louis Cardinals fan. And we're, 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 we are conditioned from the time we were little kids to say, we can't do that. You got to stick with your team thick and thin. Well, no, you don't. They don't stick with you. Why do you got to <laughs> stick with them? This is supposed to be fun. Why don't I watch a team that's enjoyable? There you go. Or, or if I can't watch any team that I love or enjoyable, I'm going to root for a player. You know, what if you're a LeBron, if you're from Akron, Ohio, and you saw LeBron James playing in high school, then you saw him play for the Cavaliers, you know, doesn't mean you got to be a Cavs fan, then a Heat fan, then a Cavs fan, then a Lakers fan. You could just be a LeBron James fan if you want to be. I know that's weird. I know that we're not supposed to do that because we we haven't been taught to do that. But you can do that. You could you could root for players just as much as you can root for the laundry they wear, and a lot of little things like that uh, I think are ways to sort of protect yourself as a sports fan and just think differently about how you approach sports and the position that it has in your life. Wow, <laughs> you you bring up a good point there too. I, I like that idea of following a player. And being a, a Rays fan, I've also found myself, you know, people when they leave here, Wilson Ramos, uh, Willie Adamas, uh, my mind goes out to watching these guys play at other teams. While I enjoy watching my Rays, especially when they're winning, there's players who have either a lot of heart or they've done things, and to, to follow them makes it exciting for me. So I absolutely get where you're at with that, man. Wander Franco, man. I, I saw him <laughs> play at single A at Princeton, West Virginia back in 2018. I, I went down there to a game. And, you know, he was, I think, 17 or something. He was younger than everybody. And he was very clearly the best player on the field. And I saw that guy hit. And I then saw him come up last year and play. He's amazing. He's got a good contract, but there's very good chance, given the way the Rays roll, that he's not going to be playing for the Rays five years from now. <laughs> oh, and yeah. if he's not, that doesn't mean you can't still like Wander Franco because he's still going to be good. So, hey, follow him where he goes. Doesn't mean, you know, if he goes to the Dodgers, don't you don't got to become a Dodgers fan. But you could certainly tune in to watch a Wander Franco at bat and root for him. There you go. Wow. Well, we've been speaking with Greg Calcaterra, and he is the author of the book Rethinking Fandom, How to Beat the Sports Industrial Complex at Its Own Game. And, man, we've just touched on just a bit of what you do, what you're saying in that book. I encourage everyone to read that. Thank you, Craig. Any other Topics or anything else you want to uh, make sure we know about? No, man. I'm just looking forward to the games coming back. Here, here, brother. <laughs> here, here. Spring training games and minor league games here shortly, so we'll see how it goes. But uh, it's, it's exciting. So it's, it's good to have baseball back. Well, Craig, thank you very much again for being on the show. And they can check you out daily, at least Monday through Friday, on your newsletter, and that's Cup of Coffee. Check it out, boys and girls, because Craig gives a unique perspective on what's happening out there, not just the news, but why it's news 
Thank you very much, Mark. Thanks for having me. All right, brother. That was Craig Calcaterra, author of the book, Rethinking Fandom, How to Beat the Sports Industrial Complex at Its Own Game. Craig's book will be released on April 5th. So thank you all once again for joining us here at Baseball Biz, and we look forward to talking with you again real soon. Special thanks to X-Tech RUX for the music rocking forward.